You're listening to TIP. Netflix, clear example of a company that was able to use capital as a weapon or operate at a big negative cash flow loss for a long period of time. That's difficult on companies like Walt Disney that are more rational. They don't have that privilege. Their investors expect them to make money. It's been tough. But do I think Disney's going to win in the long term? Absolutely. On today's episode, I'm joined by David Trainer. David is a Wall Street veteran and corporate finance expert. As CEO of New Constructs, he specializes in reversing accounting distortions on the underlying economics of business performance and stock valuation. During today's episode, David and I chat about the fundamentals of investing that hold true for all stock investors. We also cover economic earnings and why they matter, what to look out for in executive compensation, a case study between two stocks, CarMax and Carvana, what zombie companies are and what their effects are on the broader economy, why David is bearish on Tesla's stock price and bullish on Disney, and a whole lot more. With that, I really hope you enjoy today's discussion as much as I did with David Trainer. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today is a great day because we have David Trainer on the show. David, thanks for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Clay. I'd like to start off today's conversation by just talking a little bit about your investment process. In the research your team puts out, you put out these price targets, which I thought it was kind of interesting. When you think about the idea of intrinsic value, oftentimes I think of kind of a range between you know where a stock could be trading at. So I thought it was interesting you put out these kind of price targets. Talk to us a little bit about your framework for determining these price targets and valuations and the analysis your team does. Yeah, you know, we don't call them price targets internally. And we were sort of forced into it, right? They, people wanted us to have a number. And so what you'll find is that it's very much a range-oriented type of analysis. What we will put out is, is a scenario for a long idea that we think is very, very conservative, a future cash flow scenario, that is. And say, well, if the company does this, then the stock's worth this today, right? If the company's margins fall by 200 basis points and it grows, as, grows a consensus over the next five or 10 years, then the stock is worth 50% more than what it is right now. And that number is blank. And so it's really not so much our attempt to predict the future as it is to give people a sense of what the stock is worth with a very reasonable prediction. On the flip side, it works for you know, something like a Peloton, right? Well, we'll say, look, if the margins go from terribly negative to the equal to the average of all their profitable peers, and they grow a consensus rates for the next few years and 10% compound annual after that, and the stocks were six bucks. Those aren't necessarily so much price targets as they are ways to really, I think, shine kind of the, the, the light into the darkness of valuation and say, this is what the stock's worth if this happens, and gives people the opportunity to calibrate their expectations around whether or not they think that is a reasonable scenario or not. That definitely makes sense. You often see these people you know, with these high growth, high flyers, they'll say, if revenues continue to grow at 40, 50%, then it'll be worth a trillion dollars someday. And you just hear some of these ridiculous things. And one thing I noticed in your research is that you put such a heavy emphasis on economic earnings. Walk us through why that is and maybe paint a little bit of a picture for what economic earnings are. I was fortunate when I, when I kind of grew up into the business, one of my first jobs was executive compensation consulting. And in that job, we went to boards of directors and said, look, whatever you do, don't pay executives based on accounting earnings because you can grow accounting earnings while running the business into the ground. You need to look at economic earnings, also known as EVA. And the most important element within economic earnings is return on invested capital. And I'm not the only person that talks about that. That's Buffett, that's Miller, that's Mobison, that's everybody talks about return on invested capital. Because at the end of the day, understanding how much cash flow the enterprise generates relative to how much capital has gone into it is super important. And that's kind of what I grew up in the business understanding. Like day one, it was like, oh, by the way, don't rely on accounting earnings. 
that was something that came very intuitively and, and naturally to me. Like I was very skeptical when, even when I was in school, the limited amount of finance exposure you get in, in undergrad to this idea that we were like doing discounted cash flow models on net income. There's no attention to the balance sheet. You know, and then I went to Wall Street and I, and I was very fortunate to have Michael Mobison as my first boss and mentor, uh, Al Jackson his boss, and, and they were big believers in the EVA, and we were effectively creating our own brand, more, a more generic brand, right? The EVA brand is specific to the Stern Stewart guys, right? But it's the same thing as economic earnings. Economic earnings is just the general name for EVA. And we were building an entire research business around the world around this superior measure of profits. And it's superior for one main reason, Clay. It's more comprehensive, right? What you get with all these other measures, and the farther they get away from economic earnings, really the more narrowly focused they are. Gap earnings, pretty good on the income statement, has a lot of unusual gains and losses in it. That's a problem. The taxes are therefore messed up, and you got no accounting for the balance sheet, really. So it's a narrow view. The farther you move even from that, whether it's pro forma or Wall Street, the views get even more narrow because they leave more and more out. And the idea is that they're leaving out what they don't want you to know. Stock-based compensation is a great one. Oh, poof, that doesn't matter to me as an investor. Of course it does. If you're giving away the ownership in the company right, that I have an ownership of, and you're basically diluting me, I need to know about that. And to the extent we can assign a dollar value that even if it's approximate, it's better than a zero. Think about economic earnings as just a much more comprehensive, it's the full view. It's like going to the doctor and saying, well, you know, I want to understand how well I am, and the doctor just looks in yours and makes a diagnosis based on that. That's pro forma earnings, right? Gap earnings is just looking in your eyes, right? Economic earnings is a full body physical. You talk about you know, stock-based compensation. I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that. Maybe you could help me understand what are some red flags when it comes to stock-based compensation? Maybe some obvious ones to me would be very high compensation for the CEO and the execs when they're deeply cash flow negative. Whereas that might be acceptable if they're deeply cash flow positive. So maybe what are some red flags we should look for when it comes to stock-based compensation or maybe just executive compensation overall? I think too much emphasis on stock-based compensation is a little bit scary and a red flag. A lot of times it's helpful with startups because they don't have cash, but you know, there's a cost there. And whenever it's a large amount, it tends to suggest that people aren't really taking it seriously as a real expense. Uh, and then when you have big compensation packages like we've had with Tesla and a few other companies like a Valiant, what happens is you, as well-intentioned as those compensation packages might be, they tend to create a little bit of too much of a short-term focus on jacking up the stock price so that they can see windfall, huge cash windfall, profit windfall, wealth windfalls. And that may be good for the CEO in the short term. I think what we're seeing with Tesla is it's going to be bad in the long term, right? They shot the moon early on. They transformed the car industry. But what's left? I think we're going to find out that the emperor, in many ways, has, has no clothes here. And Musk is going to continue to walk away as the richest person in the world, right? That's not a good thing. You know, Valiant is a case study where the executives took a bunch of, were compensated for, by stock for a bunch of stuff, or largely by stock, and did all kinds of things to boost the stock price near term. And that business really did run into the ground. Look, anytime they're also trying to tell you that it shouldn't be a real cost, that's a red flag. Anytime someone tells you, Clay, if like, you're funding their business and they come back to you and tell you, oh, that thing I, I spent your money on, we don't count that as an expense, that's a red flag. I mean, investors need to realize managers, executives are spending their money. Those are the agents of your capital. They come back to you and start playing with the profitability numbers in a way that helps them get compensated better or in a way that doesn't accurately represent the money that's come out of your pocket or come out of the company's pocket, that's a big red flag. You mentioned Tesla and Elon Musk there, and we're going to get to him a little bit later. But I wanted to talk about something that's kind of been on my mind when it comes to just value investing. Oftentimes, when I look at some stocks that look to be attractive on a multiples basis, I can get deterred away if their top line is flat, meaning that the revenues aren't growing for the company. Why might these types of companies be worth considering, even though there are many other great companies out there that you know, have strong earnings, but they also have that revenue growth potential and long growth runway ahead? 
Yeah, look, I mean, we always want high growth, profitable businesses, right? At cheap valuations. I think what matters most here, the real way to answer this question, Clay, is to first understand the expectations in the current stock price. Because investing at the end of the day is identifying stocks where the market has profit expectations too low. You want to buy those. And you want to sell or short stocks where the market's expectations for future cash flows are too high. That's what matters most. And importantly, cash flows or economic earnings matter most, right? Because if you're growing the top line at a great rate, but your return on invested capital is below your cost of capital and your economic earnings are negative, you're actually accelerating the rate at which you destroy shareholder value. Peloton, Robinhood, Coinbase, great examples. Not so much Coinbase because they, they did get the profitability for a little while. Peloton never did. The faster they grew, the faster they destroyed value. And really, in many ways, the same is true for Tesla. They've got gap profitability, but the free cash flow has been largely negative. And take away regulatory credits, and, and the margins really aren't that good. A lot of these, especially a lot of these hyped up IPOs the last few years, these have been negative economic earnings companies. And so the faster they grow, the less profitable they are, the more unprofitable they become, and the, the more value they destroy. And so it's really about understanding the expectations for future cash flows. And so what we've seen in a lot of those high-flying stocks was that the expectations for future cash flows were completely blind. They were super high, blind to the fact that the company wasn't profitable already because I think too many investors have believed the pro forma numbers, which cut out all kinds of expenses in an effort to make the company seem profitable, whether it was profitable or not. We did the work on a Coinbase or a Robinhood or a Peloton. You know, what we found is that the expectations for future cash flows in Tesla, for example, too, were extraordinarily high to the point where they implied highly unrealistic market share gains. And we're always trying to tie the future cash flow expectations back to something that's practical and easy to understand. Like, so for example, with Tesla, when it was trading at 1200 bucks, that implied that Tesla was going to own 120% of the entire electric vehicle market by 2030. They're going to sell more cars than the entire electric vehicle market was expected to be. Okay. That's high expectations, right? Peloton had similar market share gains baked into its stock price. So did Spotify. The list goes on and on. Absurd. And so what we would say, well, if you were to back down from where the market is and assume something a lot more reasonable, then the stock is worth X. And that would be sort of a, an example of a target price. Now, to your point, Clay, on you know, what do you do with, with companies whose revenues are no longer growing uh, or even declining? And there, you, again, you start with the market's expectations for future cash flows. And if the market's expectations for future cash flows are super, super low, well, then you might have a situation where even with flat revenues, they're going to continue to generate more cash flow than what the market expects, in which case it could be too cheap. But you always got to be careful. You know, it could be a zombie company, right? It, it could be cheap for a reason because it's going out of business. You know, Radio Shack is a great example, right? Where, you know, it looked really, you know, the returns on capital were still good. The margins were great. Cash flow was great because they were selling off inventory closing stores, and the valuation implied the profits were going to permanently decline by 80%. Well, guess what? It went bankrupt. They did decline by 80% or more. In those situations where you, where you look, there's, there's no substitute for doing the diligence and making sure that you're not stepping in front of a train here because the business is going away. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree. 
expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Let's talk about a case study your team recently did. You wrote an article titled Focus on Fundamentals in Stormy Markets. And you compare these two businesses and their stock price performance. And the two businesses were CarMax and Carvana. Both are growing businesses, but the performance between the two has been drastically different over the past few years. Walk us through this case study. The main thing for um, Carvana versus CarMax was like Carvana was growing, but not profits. That was a company that had perennially, I think, negative margins. They've never earned a, a single dollar of profit. We felt like in the markets where they had experienced all of their growth, and again, growth in quotes, because it's not growth, honestly, if it's just top line growth. To me, that doesn't count always. If you can't grow top line without growing bottom line, then you're, again, you're accelerating your shareholder value destruction. When we first were negative on Carvana a long time ago, years ago, we pointed out that, that they had already really fully saturated the high density markets, Atlanta and other big cities, right? They needed that kind of exposure. I mean, everyone does. Those are scale businesses. There's not a lot of margin in used cars. If that's, not a, if that's, if that's a surprise to you, then you need to think about kind of um, some of the research you, you've, you've put into it. But yeah, there's not a lot of margin in used cars and, and there's a lot of competition. And if Carvana had been able to generate a positive return on invested capital or generate any free cash flow while expanding into the larger scalable markets, we thought that their prospects for ever generating cash flow were very, very low. Not to mention the fact that they lack the dealership model, which is where you're getting most of your inventory on trade-ins. They have to go out to the market and buy those at auction every time, which is a good model when you can be selective. It's a bad model when that's where you got to get all your cars. And so now Carvana has been out there buying, I think, used cars in the all-time highest market for used cars. You know, the prices are ridiculous. I, you know, I think someone just told me the other day, they got a new car, and uh, I think they, yeah, one of my one of our um, analysts here, Hunter Henderson, he he traded in his car, and uh, I think you know he had it for a few years. He got more than he paid for it. Anyway, what's the dichotomy? Carvana was a you know looked like a sexy business model. When you looked behind the curtain, it wasn't sexy. It all wasn't making any money, and really had no competitive position to make money. Then you flip over to CarMax and other firms all of which were adopting this paperless sales model, but who had this legacy advantage of being able to gain inventory to sell used cars on the, on the trade-in model, which is huge. Also giving people the ability to come in and see and touch a car. It's kind of a big purchase to make without ever seeing and touching. And, I, and I, look, I, I, I bought cars, cars on Carvana and I, and I, when I had to in a short turnaround. I had to send a couple back because they had scratches and stuff was broken when I got it that I didn't see. And by the way, you know, you still got to sign a lot of paperwork, you know, when you go pick it up. And so the Carvana was not sort of this sort of blissful, perfect purchase experience. And firms like CarMax had presence, established presence that was money-making. They were cash flow positive. They were making economic earnings. And the expectations baked in the CarMax stock price were really low. I think they had expectations for little to no profit growth. Whereas Carvana, 
stock price had expectations that it was going to like equal or, or exceed the market share of CarMax with profitable margins that it had yet to achieve. Pulling it all together here, with Carvana, we saw what was what we call really bad risk reward. And that new constructs were about risk reward. Bad risk reward, really high expectations for future cash flows in a super competitive market with no cash flows. And what we believe to be very low prospects for ever generating cash flow. That's bad risk reward. The market's out there selling at a price that implies this company's going to do magical things. Bad risk reward. CarMax, on the other hand, generating a ton of cash flow with expectations for little to no cash flow growth. That's good risk reward. The hurdle that the company has to clear in terms of cash flow growth to justify the current stock price, super low. It's therefore reasonable to expect that the market will likely readjust its expectations upward when the company's cash flows exceed the expected cash flows. Maybe just to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, I just looked at some of Carvana's numbers. Their revenue was $2 billion in 2018 and grew to $12 billion in 2021. And as you mentioned, cash flow negative and its market cap's around $4 billion. Is there a case to be made that they're sacrificing cash flows today to achieve that growth and potentially you know, have those cash flows in the future off of, that they can reap off of a very large revenue base? Yeah, you can make that argument. You know, A lot of companies do. And I think a lot of people believe that. But at the end of the day, what matters, Clay, is how much of those future cash flow expectations are already baked in the stock price. If the stock's already given them credit for that, there's no upside in buying it because effectively the market has awarded them a value commensurate with doing exactly what you just said. So then the real question is, okay, well, how much credit am I willing to give this company? How much of a turnaround opportunity? How much of what you said is true? We're sacrificing near-term cash flow to generate you know, long-term cash flow. We're the next Amazon, right? You know, Everyone's the next Amazon. I caution people in believing that there are going to be many more Amazons. Those are wet, once in a generation type companies. Not every company is going to be the next Amazon. But to your point, yes, it's absolutely possible that Carvana at some point will become cash flow positive. The question is, how cash flow positive is the stock price already given credit for? And would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely a fair point. In relation to a company like CarMax, for example, how many years of earnings and positive free cash flows does a company need for it to be considered you know, stable and consistent you know, in order to project that going into the future? You know, again, I think that's a subjective question. Everybody has a different expectation for that. I mean, I think you'd want to see at least one year you know, a couple of years string a low positive free cash flow. I don't think Carvana has anything close to that. This is one of our zombie stocks because they're terribly free cash flow negative. They're burning a lot of cash. They don't have a lot of cash on the books and um, therefore could run out of cash before they raise new capital. And if they raise new capital, it's going to be a lot more expensive. For example, they issued $3.3 billion in senior unsecured notes in April of this year at an interest rate of 10.25%. Where their prior, I think, debt issuances were closer to 4.9%. That's a bad situation to be in. How much cash flow do you need in order to trust the company's cash flows are sustainable? That's, I have a hard time answering that. I would kind of come back to, well, I would just want to make sure that I always buy stocks where the market's expectations for future cash flows are lower than, lower than mine. CarMax today is trading at a price that implies its cash flows will never grow, they'll stay the same as they are. That to me seems, again, if you're looking, especially looking at pair trade, right? I'd be long CarMax, short Carvana, because CarMax expectations for future cash flows are super low. Carvana's expectations for cash flows are still quite high, right? To justify, uh, when we wrote our last report on Carvana, uh, it was at 25 bucks a share. I'm not sure where it is now, but this was just written a couple of weeks ago. 22. 22. All right. So 25 is close enough, but the math is they got to improve their profit margin to 3% based on a negative 1% up to this point, and grow revenue 15% compounded annually for the next seven years. That's what they got to do to justify 25 bucks a share. In that scenario, they'd reach 34 billion in the year 2028, which is 106% of the trailing 12 months revenue of CarMax and over 100, 128% of AutoNations. The stock price is implying they're going to be bigger than both CarMax uh, and AutoNation. 
and start generating positive margins at the same time, right? So they're going to they're going to take huge amounts of market share while also improving margins. Something rarely done in the history of the world. Usually it's one or the other, right? And that was your thesis, right? They're sacrificing near-term cash flow to take market share and eventually be profitable. Just hard to do. Your firm has also been super vocal about calling out these zombie companies. And we haven't talked too much about this on the show. So could you walk us through what exactly a zombie company is? It's a company that has been burning a lot of cash flow, competitively very poorly positioned. So prospects for future cash flow are very low. And they don't have a lot of cash left on the books. So they've got maybe you know less than a year, maybe six months of cash flow burn left before they've got to either raise new capital, which in today's environment is really expensive and difficult to do, or go bankrupt. And you know, what we saw during the super easy money Fed days and all this fiscal stimulus that we've seen over most of the last 10 years was money was so cheap and available that you had a lot of bad businesses getting funded. Private equity firms were just looking at the top line. Well, that's all changed. You, know, you, you hear all the talking heads in private equity talking about unit economics and generating cash flow. And top line growth isn't enough anymore. A lot of the businesses that were able to get away with generating top line growth with no profitability and no prospects for profitability can't do that anymore. And raising money to support these unprofitable businesses is just getting a lot tougher. And some of them may not be able to do it. We call those zombie stocks. Do these types of companies pose any sort of risk to the overall financial system? Or what are your thoughts on that? Because I keep hearing how a lot of companies, even in the S&P 500, are zombie companies. I feel like there's a lot of great big companies out there. They're going to kind of keep the market from overall market from, I think, crashing too much. That said, you never know how sentiment is, right? I mean, the pendulums tend to, pendulum tends to swing too far in each direction. And it swung way up there on the irrational exuberance side the last several years. A swing to the downside is not out of the question for sure. But you know, you know, a lot of the uh, S&P 500, for example, is dominated by Microsoft and Facebook and Apple and Google. And these are really big, profitable companies that you know, aren't going to go to zero anytime soon. There are a lot of other ones, though. How much systemic risk there is in, in those stocks, it's hard for me to say, Clay. I, I think there's, a, there's more than maybe people think, especially when you throw crypto in there. I think a lot of people borrowed money to invest in stocks, or they put too much money in stocks and crypto because it was so easy and everything went up and it was by the dip and it was hodl and it was diamond hands and all these things that I think will end up enriching a lot of institutions and, and, and really making a lot of individuals much poor because so much of that investing was done without any attention to fundamentals. And I'm not here to say fundamentals should be 100% of what you do. It just shouldn't be zero. You know, have some risk management in your process. You know, you're welcome to make bad bets on a fundamental perspective, but at least know that it's bad so that you can have some risk management around that and understand that you know, when things start to turn against you, you better sell. You better sell fast. Otherwise, you're going to be left with nothing. And I think a lot of people just took a lot of risk. And when that starts to unwind, I think we could see a lot of really, a lot of selling and a lot of pressure across the market that could lead to some pretty big declines. Let's get back to talking a little bit about Tesla. I enjoy bringing on just a variety of viewpoints on the show. And we've talked about a little bit about the bull case on the show in previous episodes. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about your opinion on why you're a Tesla bear and maybe talk a little bit about what their cash flows have looked like maybe the past year or two. Yeah, I think the free cash flow in the last year or two is negative 1.2 billion. Tesla's a great example of um of expectations analysis, expectations investing. At 1200 bucks, the stock price implied they were going to own 120% of the electric vehicle market. Uh, those expectations are too high. And I think in our last report, where do we now? It's 700 bucks. We do a bunch of scenario analysis on this, which is, I think is kind of cool, right? Where we look at multiple levels of market share, right? To give you a sense of, of what makes sense. But really at the end of the day, what it, what it comes down to is, hey, what's the implied market share based on the current valuation? And from there, you can back into, well, how many cars they have to sell? And from there, to, to justify that valuation, to justify that market share. And then how many factories they got to build to build that many cars to justify, to achieve that market share, to justify that valuation. And what you realize when you just do that math is that it's ridiculous, not going to happen. And they're not doing it, by the way. 
they would need to be adding, I think, 500,000 cars of capacity every six months or at least every year. Uh, no, it's more like every six months over the next several years in order to get to the seven or eight million or 15 million kind of vehicle level that you need to get to to justify. Well, that was 1,100 bucks a share. But you get the idea, right? Even if you're just looking to get to seven or eight million cars, you got to be building a lot of factories, and they're not. They're not. They've got three or four now, and I think almost all of them are at least partially or fully offline. It's not happening. And the company's losing market share, losing it, not gaining it. Remember to justify that thousand bucks a share or so, they got to get to over 100%. We're not trending well in that direction. The bottom line, it's been really difficult for Tesla to scale up. And I don't know that they will. I don't think that they will. I think the competition from the incumbents has arrived and it will continue to eat away at the great lead that Tesla had. And hats off to Elon Musk and to Tesla for changing the market. Spent a lot of capital, Clay, spent a lot of money proving EVs. That's money that the incumbents didn't have to spend. And then the incumbents can get to wait until they can produce EVs at a profit or at scale, which is what they're doing, right? I think the Ford EVs, the Mustang, immediately profitable. The F-150, immediately profitable because they can build it at scale in the beginning. And the fast follower strategy has been a smart one for decades. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. You've been beating the drum on the market being a discount mechanism of future earnings. And I'm sure there are a lot of smart people on the bull side, and I'm sure they're not projecting 120% of the EV market or the electric vehicle market owned by Tesla. They might push back and say, well, 
Tesla has plenty of assets that aren't producing earnings today, but very well could be behemoths in the future. Call it maybe something similar to what AWS was to Amazon, where it was not any part of their business in the previous years, but now it's, you know, it's one of their main drivers of earnings. And for Tesla, that might be their battery technology or maybe insurance or some sort of ride sharing service, or maybe even use or utilize some of the data they're collecting in their vehicles. Just throwing out some ideas. I'm by no means a Tesla expert, not a shareholder myself, but it's all about sort of expectations where you're not seeing that earnings today. And to bet on that for the future is really just a gamble. Whereas the bull side maybe has done deep research on it. And they truly believe that Elon's going to be able to pull this out of his back pocket and make, make it happen. No, I, I agree. And we've addressed those other business opportunities in multiple reports. You know, Battery technology, bottom line, Tesla's no longer a leader, hasn't been for a long time. You've got a lot of big companies, even countries building out battery technology that's very competitive, is good or better than Tesla's. They lost the lead on the battery front for a long time. Insurance, insurance is a joke, Clay. You know, look, insurance is a tough business and they don't have that much data. And they just actually admitted in one of the F- FSD investigations that they don't actually have the infrastructure to collect as much data as they say they've been collecting for their own FSD project, full self-driving, by the way. And there's been a variety of other businesses, but insurance, like that's a, there's some big companies doing insurance and they're doing it well. And Tesla's not going to be able to compete with those. They still don't have enough vehicles. And by the way, GM for the OnStar has been collecting a ton of data on that front as well. It's not something that Tesla has a monopoly on. And by the way, GM's got a lot more cars out there and a lot more miles for collections. The insurance one, that one's kind of a joke. Battery, I can see how people would think that because they were a leader in battery. They're not anymore. And let's talk about full self-driving. Not a leader there. I think they're ranked amongst the, the bottom of the pack at, the, at this point, right? And you've heard Elon Musk himself even say, Tesla's worth a lot of money if they can solve full self-driving. Might be worth zero if not. That's a direct quote from him. Recent as well. A lot's riding on full self-driving for a lot of people, a lot of firms. Apple's doing it. GM's doing it. Google's doing it. They're spending a lot of money on this because it's a huge potential revenue stream. Don't get me wrong. Do I think Tesla's going to be the firm that solves it? I do not. That's my opinion. I think Elon Musk has been great at selling it. But when you look at all the stats, surveys and the research, GM is in the lead. Google, Apple, they're all way ahead of Tesla. They've been falling behind. Part of the problem is that when Tesla moved away from LiDAR and the cameras only, a lot of people don't believe it can be done without LiDAR. I think in all the other firms, they've got a combination of those sensors, more sensors. Musk made some sacrifices for appearances on the car that I think really handicapped their ability to be successful with full self-driving. And I'm, I'm afraid that there's going to potentially be some bad news when these investigations come out and they find that autopilot was engaged or autopilot was automatically disengaged moments before collision so as to avoid any liability. There's just some stuff that you know. I think long-term, as we look at the real story of Elon Musk, I'm just not inclined to trust uh, as much as other folks on that front. I feel like it was a potentially a bit misleading to continue to pump his stock when it was that overpriced because he's not the one losing, right? It's a lot of individuals that don't know any better. It's a big grift. And I don't like that. Same with the Dogecoin stuff. Like started getting into that stuff. It's grifting. It's taking advantage of folks. And, I, and that, that to me is a, is a sign of a potentially a character issue that means you, you, just, you need to step back and be careful. We talked a bit about the zombie aspect where some companies may not even have the earnings to pay off the interest on their debt. And when interest rates rise, that only becomes more and more of an issue. How dependent is Tesla on that external financing? And will higher interest rates put pressure on them I guess if their stock price is really high, they would be able to sell stock instead of get financing via taking on a loan. So curious your thoughts on that. Great question, right? And they've sold a lot of stock at some high prices here recently, right? There's a lot of cash on the books and not a lot of debt for Tesla. Uh, Yeah, free cash flow. I misspoke before. In the trailing 12 months, it's a negative 358 million. In 2021 fiscal year, it was negative 2.9 billion. 2020, negative 1.1 billion. In 2019, positive 2.6 billion. That was a year they cut back R&D and a lot of other stuff. 
2018, negative 1.9 billion. 2017, negative 7.4 billion. All in, I think you're looking at about negative 10 billion over the last five years in free cash flow. And then let's see, cash on the books. Yeah, they've got around at least 15 billion. They could got at least another five years in them. And that's excess cash. I think the actual, yeah, they've got closer to, to 18 billion just pure cash on the books. Yeah, that can last them a while. And Musk has been really good at selling stock. And so, again, that's all part of, in some cases, the grift. 6.8 billion in debt, 6.9 billion in debt. So, not that much relative to what 18 billion in cash over the last five years, uh, around 10 billion. They're not so much a zombie company because they've got that big cash store on the books that can fund them for a while. When I look at the, uh, you know, just do a, just on a stock screener, stock filter, just searching Tesla, I see actually positive free cash flow. So I'm curious what sort of adjustments you're making to say, yeah, yeah their cash flows are actually negative and diluting shareholder value. Yeah, you got to be really careful with these screeners and the data you get out there. The free data is free for a reason. It's not good. It's not scrubbed. We've specialized in scrubbing it. We built technology for the last 20 years to scrub data at scale, which is very difficult to do because you have to read these footnotes and look at the income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement. And I think because of technologies like ours, the world is waking up to the fact that, oh, we can't trust those numbers that we get from FactSet or Yahoo Finance or any of them. But it all comes down to what I said in the beginning, right? If you're going to look at fundamentals, you need to do the full body physical, the full company physical. You need to look at everything. The differences between our cash flows and a shortcut or traditional legacy measures of cash flows tend to fall into a couple of buckets. Number one, unusual gains and losses that are buried on the income statement bundled into other line items that people miss. This is what, in particular, the Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan professors focused on when they showed that our measure of core earnings was superior, materially so. About 20% difference between our number and your average S&P 500 company number, much bigger in the smaller caps. So it's a big, big material number. Other things, stock-based compensation often gets left out on most companies' cash flow numbers. Off-balance sheet debt, off-balance sheet financing gets left off. Uh, a lot of the working capital stuff can be... It just depends because a lot of people are looking at EBIT or... or well, there's so many different ways of measuring free cash flow and people kind of attack us a lot or, oh, you know, you're measuring free cash flow wrong. I'm like, well, tell me what the official right way is. Everyone's doing it differently. I can tell you hand on heart that I believe ours is the most comprehensive and useful. And we've got many flavors of it. You know, Some people want to exclude acquisitions, but the core numbers based on a clean net operating profit after tax and a change in invested capital, we do that. We do a version of the free cash flow to, to equity holders only, free cash flow excluding acquisitions. Those are the main buckets of things that we're missing or that we're, that's different from other people. We're looking at more than just CapEx. Over two years ago, you had a conversation with Preston and Stig on their show, and you talked all about Disney. I'd be curious to get a, just a brief, maybe quick update on maybe Disney's business performance over the past few years and how they've weathered through the pandemic and adapted. Yeah, Disney's definitely struggled. We were projecting with Disney was a quicker return to profitability. What we'd seen over the years when they made big acquisitions that the return on invested capital would dip as it does within, within a big acquisition, but the return or the bounce back and return on invested capital was really fast because Disney has a superior content creation and content monetization platform. In comparison, in contrast, Netflix has a very weak content monetization platform. They've got one way to monetize content through streaming, and that's not worked out so well. Netflix is a big negative free cash flow company as well. People don't realize that, right? And that's another one. Oh, if we just build it big enough, eventually we'll have enough customers and we'll be profitable and every, all our problems will be solved. Now, that's not really working out that way because guess what? Producing content is expensive and you need to have multiple ways to monetize. And that's something that Disney has. And by multiple ways to monetize, I'm talking about multiple channels of distribution, whether it's streaming, whether it's movies, whether it's DVDs, whether it's cartoons and syndication. And you got merchandising. That's a big one. And you've also got theme parks. But let's face it, COVID and travel and all that it was really hard on Disney. And so the return to profitability has taken longer. 
especially when you've got to compete with companies like Netflix and others that can use cheap capital as a weapon, to borrow a term from Bill Gurley, using capital as a weapon. That was what a lot of the private equity firms were allowing companies to do by funding them extravagantly when they were not making any money. Netflix, clear example of a company that was able to use capital as a weapon or operate at a big negative cash flow loss for a long period of time. That's difficult on companies like Walt Disney that are more rational. They don't have that privilege. Their investors expect them to make money. It's been tough. But do I think Disney is going to win the long term? Absolutely. I think their library of original content is much deeper and their ability to monetize is much, much better. They're already still way more profitable than Netflix. Uh, you know, I think before the Fox acquisition, I think Disney was making around $10 billion a year in free cash flow, where, free, you know, where Netflix was burning that much, right? I mean, it was just, it's a tale of two very different businesses. Yeah, if they can just get back to historical levels of pro- approaching historical levels of profitability, Disney, you know, Disney's got a lot of upside. Man, you bring up such a good point right there. The phrase using cheap capital as a weapon kind of, you know, just had this aha moment for me. I think it's made investing a little bit harder than it might have been prior to the years of low, artificially low interest rates. For example, you have a company like Uber just doing a full-on attack on the taxi driver industry because they're able to every single ride-sharing service that they're performing, you know, is operating at a loss. Same thing with Lyft. And then I think right. of a company like Airbnb doing a full-on attack on the hotel industry and hospitality. And now you have many people complaining about the fees on Airbnb or the higher prices on Uber and Lyft. And it's like, okay, now things are all out of, you know, these artificially low interest rates can just throw an industry all out of whack and confuse investors and confuse consumers as well and frustrate a lot of people along the way. So I really like that point you bring up. I think it's incredibly important because the worst part about it, Clay, is not, it's not just confusing. It's waste of capital, right? How much, how many billions did we, did these companies spend just to no avail, right? Uber and Lyft, still not profitable, right? And they had to change their internal KPI away from adjusted EBITDA because adjusted EBITDA doesn't actually represent profitability. Aha, goodness gracious. Like that's the world we live in. That's news. Oh, a major publicly traded company that came out at a $40 billion valuation, or whatever it was. Oh, it took them five years to say, oh, yeah, that number we've all been telling you that we're targeting, it doesn't really actually translate into profits. The real issue is opportunity cost here, Clay. If that capital that was burned on overpaying salaries and executives and a business model that ultimately isn't really going to work, right? You can only sell things below cost for so long. If that capital could have been deployed into good companies that were actually going to create wealth, create shareholder value, we as a society enjoy higher levels of growth and prosperity. Instead, this capital is wasted on Wall Street fees, outsized executive compensation, money taken from the pockets of many, pennies from the pockets of many into the pockets of few. It's a bit of a tragedy. And that's part of why I feel like a lot of these business leaders, Elon Musk and and the heads of these companies, other companies, whether it's Snap or Lyft or Uber or Robinhood and Coinbase, right? they bear some responsibility for hoarding and stealing huge amounts of capital to benefit themselves personally at the expense of society when it's at that scale. Wall Street's at the front of the row of this one too, right? I mean, they're setting this stuff up, right? I mean, come on. You know, a lot of these IPOs have really turned out to be jokes. And, and look, Wall Street makes money either way, right? They get hundreds of millions of dollars of fees on these IPOs. And that's, um, you know, it's good for them, but it's bad for society. And I want people to understand that that's a big part of what drives new constructs every day is like our mission is to improve the integrity of the capital markets by informing people the truth about fundamentals. Again, fundamentals don't need to be 100% of what you do, shouldn't be zero. And if you have a little bit of risk management in there, a little bit of an eye on what's going on with the fundamentals, it's just going to keep you from getting blown up or help you avoid the blow-ups. Because at the end of the day, the stock market is a capital allocation mechanism. The purpose of the stock market is to allocate capital to its highest and best use. When we take this huge amount of resources and we burn a bunch of it, we give it away a bunch to people who are buying big mansions or flying around on jets, that's taking away from society's ability to be more prosperous and grow the pie. And that's a big part of what we're about. We want to help people invest intelligently and then therefore grow the pie here in the United States and around the world so that civilization moves forward in a more productive way. 
I think my big takeaway from today's conversation is just be a little bit careful about the numbers you see out there. So David, such a good conversation. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for taking the time for our audience to join me today. Before we close out the episode, I want to give you the handoff to New Constructs, what you guys are working on, and anything else you'd like to share. Yeah, thanks, Clay. This has been a lot of fun. I love these kinds of conversations. I think it's, uh, it's helpful for people to hear it from someone who's not your sort of traditional talking head, doesn't have an axe to grind or a product to sell. I'm not a banker. I'm not a consultant. Uh, we are purely focused on honest, reliable research. We genuinely want to help people be more, more informed. I think you'll see that in all of the research that we publish on our site. We've got long ideas, danger zone ideas, and we've got subscriptions starting at as low as $9.99 and going to $10,000 plus a month, depending on the type of customer you are. We serve a wide variety of customers. Most of our business is institutional. Some of the biggest names in the business paying us for our data that they can trade systematically to generate alpha uh, because it's so unique. And all of that powers the rest of our research. And I think in a world where there's so many whiz-bang tools around there about how to like better organize the existing information, you know, maybe it's time to go back and, and, and just look for a better source of information in general. And, and that's what I believe we provide, a better measure of profitability and valuation to make more informed decisions and to provide, I think, most importantly, a source of research that people can really trust. Well, David, I really enjoyed this. I'll be sure to link your info in the show notes for those interested. Thanks a lot for joining me again. My pleasure. Thank you, Clay. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.